The Tom Woods Show, episode 1671. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, I have the best, nicest, smartest, brightest group of like-minded, friendly folks you can possibly imagine where we learn from each other, we get outraged with each other, we rejoice with each other. It's a wonderful community of folks, and you, as a loyal listener of The Tom Woods Show, belong inside it. It's called The Tom Woods Show Elite, and you can get in there via supportinglisteners.com. Hi, everybody. Tom Woods here. I promised you we would have an episode that abstracts entirely from what's going on in the news these days because that's all we've been talking about. But there are other things that we can explore as libertarians, and one of them is Bitcoin. I have a lot of folks interested in it. I have a lot of folks saying I should talk more about it. Well, today is your lucky day. And joining us is Vijay Boyapati. I'm I'm not going to tell you who he is just yet because I'm going to draw that out of him in just a second. But that name will be familiar to some of you who are veterans of the Ron Paul presidential campaigns. Because when we found out about this guy, we just loved him instantly. And he has continued to write and to stay active in our cause over the course of all these intervening years. And I'm delighted to be able to welcome him to the show. VJ, welcome. Thanks, Tom. It's awesome to chat with you again. I I feel like I'm uh, talking to an old comrade in arms from our days back in the Ron Paul campaign in 2007. So it's, I'm very excited to talk to you again. You know, I have a photo of the two of us at uh, Jekyll Island event at the Mises Institute Crown about 10 years ago that I remember quite fondly. Yep, I remember that. I remember that exact photo you're talking about because I looked at it just a few days ago and I, I have fond memories of that, uh, that meeting as well. I was signing a book or something in that photo. I think so. Yeah, I think I still have a copy of. I think it was Human Action, and I. I yes, that's I right. You to, that's I wanted right. to get your signature on Human Action. I think it's you know incredibly important book, and I'm a huge fan of yours, so I, I wanted to get your signature. That's very kind of you to say. Now, let's before we talk about Bitcoin, talk just a minute about your story, because those of us who were in the Ron Paul presidential campaign movement from 2007 actually remember you because we thought this was the greatest thing we'd ever heard. This is a guy from, I won't say the company name, I, I won't take away the, the fun of, of having you say it, but you heard Ron Paul and you quit your job to go support him. Tell that story. So I was an employee of Google and I worked at Google a long time ago uh, in the early 2000s. And I, that's where I came across libertarianism and the Austrian School of Economics. And I didn't think libertarianism really had any political hope. I was interested in it more philosophically and economically. And then I was, I was watching the Republican debate in the 2008 elect, for the 2008 election to select the Republican candidate, and I came across Ron Paul. And really, it felt like being hit by a bolt of lightning. This guy was up on stage saying things that no other politician had ever said and it was it was really inspiring, and I decided very quickly that I needed to do something to help him to get that message that he was talking about spread as far across the country as possible. And so I quit my job, my very lucrative job at Google, and I uh, traveled to New Hampshire. I helped raise millions of dollars for his campaign. I brought hundreds of volunteers to New Hampshire. I had a goal of knocking on every door. Uh, in the state of New Hampshire and telling people about 
Ron Paul, about ending the Federal Reserve, about ending the war in Iraq. And ultimately, it didn't work out. But it was it was a really inspiring experience for me to meet someone like Ron, Dr. Paul, who just so principled. And being principled when you're just a libertarian going about your everyday life is not particularly hard. But when you're a congressman and you're really you face all these political pressures, maintaining your principle then is a very difficult thing. We've seen a lot of people go into Congress and lose their so-called principles, but Ron never did. And I just find him a really inspiring character. Well, as do we all. So then eventually your interest turned to Bitcoin. And you've written about a number of things. I've read an article by you on healthcare. You've talked about inflation and deflation. But I want to talk about Bitcoin. I haven't talked about Bitcoin in a while. And I'm sick and tired of talking about riots and viruses. So <laughs> doggone it, we're going to act as if the world is normal. We're going to talk about Bitcoin. So Good. as I keep saying, and I've been saying till I've been blue in the face, the trouble Bitcoin has, from what I can see, is that it doesn't have good enough promoters. That so far, the messaging is way too technical. That when I ask people, explain to me what Bitcoin is, well, it's a peer-to-peer. What? Okay, right away, you've lost 99% of the public. <laughs> well, see, there are these nodes that 99% of the public lost already. So I'm going to now ask you, <laughs> what is Bitcoin in a way that a normal human being can understand? Like, pretend I'm a sociology major, you know, like, so therefore, I don't know anything, and try and describe it to me. You know, I think you have a really good point there, Tom. It, it can seem intimidating, and, and I hope I can be, you know, a good advocate for Bitcoin. I think Bitcoin seems difficult to understand because it isn't presented at the right level of abstraction. Most people who describe it get into the weeds, like you're saying, and they, they discuss the technical details like the blockchain and peer-to-peer networks. But really, most people don't understand how the dollar works at that level of abstraction. They don't understand how the Fed works or how it interacts with the U.S. Treasury or how new reserves are created. Heck, I don't really, to be honest, it's a bit embarrassing. I don't really understand how my car works, but fundamentally, I know how to use my car. And it's not that hard to understand how to use Bitcoin. I I would describe it as a nascent store of value. It's the best store of value that has ever existed, in my opinion. If I was to give you a really brief summary, I'd call it digital gold, It's gold, except it has teleportation built in. But unlike gold, whose supply only increases slowly, Bitcoin has ultimate scarcity. There will never be more than 21 million Bitcoins ever created. So to own even a single Bitcoin, if Bitcoin becomes a global store of value, as I believe it will, will make you tremendously wealthy. It's kind of like buying Manhattan for a quarter. All right, that's actually a great answer because... Frankly, I don't know how anything works in my life. Honestly, I really don't. Everything's like a miracle to me all day long. That's true. But with Bitcoin, I'm dealing with something that's very, very important to me. I mean, I can, if I lose my TV, I'll get another TV. But if all my money got wiped out, that would be a problem. And I've heard of people who, well, you know, I was new to Bitcoin and I had some Bitcoin that was stored on my phone and I lost the phone, so I lost all the Bitcoin. I mean, you hear stories like this and you think, well, you know, at some level, this is on you and you really need to know what you're doing when you get into it. But I've found maybe a, I don't know if they're working on this or it's getting better, but there's a bit of a user-friendly or user-unfriendly 
aspect to it. I mean, at least with the dollar, I can go to the ATM, pull out some pieces of paper, stick them in my wallet. That's the end of it. I, I understand exactly what's going on. Generally, there aren't that many bank failures in the U.S., and if there are, I'm generally made whole. Whereas with Bitcoin, we hear, oh, this exchange went down and nobody knows what happened to all the Bitcoin. Now, is that overblown? Are these concerns overblown? I think it's really a new market. Bitcoin has only existed for 10 years. And and so really the technologies around it are still developing. I like to give the analogy of the internet in like, you know, the late 90s. It had a lot of promise and people thought it might be important. They didn't know how it was going to be important. If you're able to transport yourself back to 1999 and what your mindset about what the internet would be at the time, I don't think any of us would have really imagined how profoundly important it became and the ways in which we would use it, how we use you know, Google Maps every day. We, watch, we get our entertainment through the internet. We buy things online. But in that early stage, it just seemed like you know, a bunch of dancing monkeys and flashing text. And it really wasn't obvious, I think. The same kind of idea applies to Bitcoin as well. There's a, a lot that needs to be developed to make it more user-friendly and approachable. But that's, that's really happening. It's happening as we speak. I would also say that Bitcoin is a true free market. And in a true free market, banks can fail. <laughs> it's, it's kind of an an- anomaly that banks don't fail. And that's because the government kind of props them up. It is problematic that some of these institutions have failed and you know, taken people's Bitcoins or they've been lost. Bitcoin has the potential where people can become their own bank and store their own value relatively easy. It's still not trivial, but it's relatively easy. And I believe in time, uh, it'll become much easier. If you're one of the intrepid people who, you know, wants to get hold of Bitcoin now, you have to do a bit of research, you have to do some reading, you have to figure out a little bit of technology. But the advantage is you'll be really early. You'll be one of the people who are really early to this thing, which I think is going to change the world. And I think is going to become the global monetary base. It's going to become what gold was in the 19th century. And I kind of think this is sort of a little tangent. I think sound money, which is I'm sure a concept that your listeners are familiar with because Ron Paul talked about it all the time. Sound money is the norm of human history. The century between the gold standard and the Bitcoin standard, I call that the fiat money interregnum. It's it's the anomaly of history and it's not going to last forever. So I agree with you. It's still a little bit hard. And, you know, if, if you're not that technologically savvy, it may seem intimidating. But if you, if you put the effort in, I think you're going to be early on something that's going to be really, really big. Well, let's make it even simpler by explaining to people in what way they benefit by getting into Bitcoin. Now, you've just said in the long run, this thing is going places and you're going to be glad you did it. But I'm talking about just in the mundane activities of day-to-day life. It's true it would be better to have a money that gains in value than one that loses value. We all get that. But in my daily life, the dollar serves its purpose well enough, let's say, would be the way most people would think. And moreover, although it may be true that if Bitcoin ever became money in the Misesian sense of being the most widely accepted medium of exchange, then maybe its price would stabilize and we wouldn't have these wild fluctuations. But right now we do have fairly significant fluctuations such that it's not clear that my Bitcoin, the purchasing power of the Bitcoin is going to increase in value consistently. When the pandemic broke out, it dropped from 
around 10K to around 6K very quickly. So in the short run, this could be very destabilizing for my whole financial position. So, you know, why do I want to get into it would be the question. Yeah, that's that's a great question. And I think one thing to understand, the process of monetization is not perfectly linear. It's not going to happen in a perfectly predictable, predictable way because markets don't work that way. You can't go from something that's worth nothing. And, you know, 10 years ago, Bitcoin did, didn't exist and didn't have a market value. You can't go from having a value of nothing to being worth trillions of dollars. And I, you know, I think that's going to happen in the next few years. Definitely, I think it's going to happen in the last decade. You can't make that jump without volatility. You're going to have people perceive that it's going to be valuable and then change their mind. And that's going to cause swings. You can have new people coming in with substantial amounts of money into a relatively small market. Like if one billionaire came in and said, hey, I recognize this Bitcoin thing is actually a better version of gold. I want to put 5% of my portfolio in it. That could cause a massive swing upward in the price. So I think volatility has to be expected. But I would say, you know, to go back to the start of your question, you said, what purpose does Bitcoin serve me? I can go about and buy things with dollars. That's true. I, I think we need to talk about money as having different functions. And the three functions I think money plays in society is it's a store of value. People hold it because they want to keep their savings or the profits that they make from their business in something that you know is going to hold its value or increase in value over time. They use it as a medium of exchange, which is I want to go and buy something and I don't want to do a barter transaction with the other person. I, I want to use some medium of indirect exchange, which is what money is. And then the unit of account, which is we price things in terms of that good. So for example, when gold was money, you could say that a cow cost one ounce of gold. That's that's a unit of account. And there was an economist, William Stanley Jevons, who was one of the fathers of marginalist economics, with along with Karl Menger, who I'm sure some of your listeners will be familiar with. He's a father of Austrian economics. But Jevons said that money evolves along these stages. And he mentioned this in terms of gold. Gold started out as kind of a collectible, which had no use at all. And it was just valued because it was you know, a shiny rock. And then eventually it becomes a store of value where people say, hey, there are a lot of people who seem to want this thing. So I might keep some of it just to keep some of my savings in. It becomes a widely viewed store of value. Eventually enough people believe it's valuable that they start using it for exchange and it becomes a medium of exchange. And once it's used very widely as a medium of exchange, people say, oh, let's price everything in terms of it. One of the big problems I think in modern economics is we focus on the medium of exchange role of money, and that's all we think about. But I think the store of value use of money is actually more significant. Where savings are held in the world is more important than what's necessarily used in exchange. And I'm going to give you a brief example. I hope I'm not going on too much of a tangent. But in Argentina, the peso was used for exchange, but the dollar was used for savings. Of course, the Argentinian government, if it had its preference, the peso would be used for savings as well. So it could appropriate those savings through inflation. So I really think that 
Bitcoin is sort of taking that first use of money, the store of value use of money, and it's going to take some time before it gets to that later role, the medium of exchange role of money. But in that process, as people are adopting it as a store of value, its purchasing power, its value is going to go up tremendously because its supply is fixed. So the more people that use it, the more valuable it will become. The more people that recognize that, hey, this thing is, has ultimate scarcity and it does all the thing that, things that gold does, but even better, its price is going to go up and eventually it, it will stabilize, as you mentioned. I remember distinctly when I was first introduced to Bitcoin, it was 2013. I was in New Hampshire for the Liberty Forum, which is one of the two annual events the Free State Project puts on. And I was taken aside by Eric Voorhees, who's been on the show uh, several times to talk about Bitcoin and who's very, very good at explaining it. Yeah. And then also with him, now, of course, he's become more controversial since then, was Roger Veer. And the two of them said, it is shocking to us that you don't know about Bitcoin. You need to get in on this because we're telling you this is going to be meaningful and important. And they sat me down and, you know, they just couldn't stop talking. They took me to lunch and just talk, 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 talk. And I walked away thinking, all right, I didn't, I have the gist of what they're saying. I don't understand all the details, but I sort of felt like if people who are this smart are into this thing, maybe there's something to it. I mean, that honestly, that was the first thing that got me thinking about it. And it was, I think it was Roger saying he was standing on a stage and he pulled out his phone and he said, now look, I'm going to transfer some Bitcoin to somebody in China instantly, right now, with no fees, no nothing, no, nobody getting in the way, no obstacles, and boom, it happened. And I remember thinking, well, that is kind of impressive. You know, there's something that's outside the control of the politicos and that can be done like that with either no fee or very, very low costs. But then what happened was uh, a couple of years ago, I started to hear that Bitcoin transactions were becoming much more expensive and the system couldn't handle that many transactions after all. And so then we started to hear Bitcoin people saying, well, we're not really expecting Bitcoin to become a medium of exchange. Rather, we're thinking of it as a store of value. And, and I think, unless I'm misunderstanding this, the thought that people had at the beginning was that it would be a generally accepted medium of exchange. It wouldn't just be a store of value and it would be able to handle many, many, many transactions. And I think this is part of where the controversy with so-called Bitcoin cash came about. Can you sort all this out for us? Yeah, I think the issue that you're talking about comes down to the fact that different people have different views on how money comes about. And the Bitcoin cash people sort of view the medium of exchange role as like, the first thing that happens. And I really think that's quite mistaken. As I said, I think money evolves in stages and it has to be widely valued before it can be widely used in exchange. And the problem with focusing on the medium of exchange role of money first is that when something has a fixed supply like Bitcoin, as it becomes more widely adopted and held and used, its price is just inevitably it has to go up. When there's five people using Bitcoin, it's going to be worth pennies. But when there's five million people using Bitcoin, it's going to be worth a lot more. So there's this opportunity cost to relinquishing it to use it as a medium of exchange. And I'll give you an example. There's a famous example of someone in 2010 who used 10,000 Bitcoins to buy two pizzas. and 
at the time, Bitcoin, I don't believe, had a market price or it was worth pennies. And those 10,000 Bitcoin are now worth about $100 million. So people quickly learned that this thing has a fixed supply. I really shouldn't be spending it. I should be holding it until it's widely held across the world, which is still a long way off. Once it's widely held across the world, then it's going to plateau. Its purchasing power is going to plateau. And then it will become useful as a medium of exchange. That's my view. And that's where I think I differ with the people who went off and did did the Bitcoin cash thing. They were really focused on fees. They they wanted fees to be low on, on the blockchain. So what they said is, we want to change one of the parameters. And I don't want to get too technical. You don't really need to understand what the parameter is, but it was called the block size. And, and I want to give you a little bit of an analogy to describe this. So you're familiar with Twitter and how valuable it can be as a platform for spreading information. Imagine if there was a version of Twitter that could not be censored at all. That's obviously not what Twitter is today. The company censors all sorts of things. But imagine if there was a version where anyone could post anything and it couldn't be taken down. It would be a version that couldn't be changed or tinkered with to suit the political whims of the employees at Twitter. It just does one thing. It lets people post to a platform for anyone to see. That would be hugely valuable for free speech. Now, imagine if a group of people came along and they decide to make a copy of this version of Twitter that I'm talking about, and they say, the fact that it can't be changed isn't what's important. What's important is the character limit on the Twitter post is too short. They need to be changed from 280 characters to to 350 characters. That's what's important. And they're willing to sacrifice the immutability of the platform to make this one parameter change. And my opinion, that's what Bitcoin Cash is. It's a copy of Bitcoin that sacrifices its most valuable property, which is its immutability. It can't be changed, which means it can't be attacked by governments. And they did that to change one parameter, which is called the block size. And really, I think it, it was a terrible sacrifice. It, it's sacrificing the most important characteristic of this thing that can't be censored, Bitcoin, Governments can't stop the transmission of value around the world. And they tinkered with it to change something that really isn't, it doesn't solve the problem that they're trying to solve, which is we want to have all transactions on the Bitcoin blockchain. That's just not possible. It's not computationally possible to do that. Even when gold was money in the 19th century, only a small fraction of all transactions happened with physical gold. A lot of transactions happened at what you call higher levels of the monetary system. So, for instance, promissory notes, instead of moving around gold coins, the coins would stay in a bank and you would use promissory notes. And, you know, obviously promissory notes became corrupted and allowed for fractionalization and some bad things. But really promissory notes were a really big innovation to money because it allowed you to easily transmit value, transmit gold without actually physically moving the gold. The same thing is going to be true for Bitcoin. That bottom base layer of Bitcoin, that what's called the blockchain, we want that to be immutable. We don't want that to change. We don't want anyone to come along and say, hey, we want to change it so that only these people can use it or these types of transactions can be used. That, that would be really, really bad. We want it as libertarians, we want it so that no one can attack it. That's the value proposition I see in Bitcoin, that it's money 
it's a store of value that can't be censored. And it's not worth sacrificing that to upgrade this one little parameter, which ultimately upgrading that parameter didn't solve anything. And if you look at the market, the market, both of these exist, Bitcoin Cash and Bitcoin, the original Bitcoin. The market agreed with me. The market values Bitcoin much, much more highly than Bitcoin Cash. Bitcoin Cash is a minuscule fraction of the value of Bitcoin because the market perceives that that's where Bitcoin's real value is, to be a non-sovereign store of value, a store of value that can't be controlled by governments. Well, let's look at where Bitcoin is today. And first of all, I want to know, are there any technological hurdles or any challenges that Bitcoin is facing right now that need to be solved? I mean, there are lots of developments, uh, sort of technical. I, I, I don't want to go into them too much. I, I see the ultimate problem is the ease with which liquidity can come into Bitcoin. Right now, if, if someone wanted to put a large amount of money into gold, it's a relatively easy thing to do. In fact, there's like a, a, a stock symbol that you can buy called GLD. If you, if you don't know much about buying physical gold, you can just open up a brokerage account and say, buy $10,000 worth of GLD. We need the same ease of liquidity coming into Bitcoin before it can reach the same level as gold. Gold currently has a, a market cap of about $10 trillion, which is about, I think, 40 times or 50 times bigger than Bitcoin. Once it becomes easy enough to buy Bitcoin, once the mechanisms for people to move money into it are more readily available and easy to use, I think Bitcoin is going to achieve that same level that gold has and eventually surpass gold because it has these properties, these monetary properties that gold doesn't have. You can't teleport gold, for instance. So yeah, that's that's the big development in my mind is the financial machinery around Bitcoin. I think the protocol is going to you know, improve over time and they're going to add bells and whistles, but I don't see that as too important, especially to the lay person. You know, that's, it's almost like you're anticipating my next question because I was curious to know, you've said Bitcoin's been around for only 10 years. You know, it's very, very young compared to other media of exchange. But a legitimate question people might have would be, what is it going to take for it to break through? I mean, I think it has st- it started to break through just beyond techies and libertarians a little bit, and that's a definitely a positive step. But obviously, the number of transactions in Bitcoin is, I, I mean, probably it's an even smaller percentage of the overall number of transactions than the price of Bitcoin cash is compared to Bitcoin. I mean, it, it, is, it is negligible. So how do you go from negligible to where you think it will be? So is it more or less the same answer, or is there more to that? Not entirely sure how I should take that, which direction I should go with that question. But I, I would just say that I don't know if there's going to be a specific breakthrough moment. I think it happens at the margin. What happens is each individual looks for a use case when they're looking at monetary goods. You know, all monetary goods are constantly competing with each other to gain usage or gain savings from the population. There's Gold is out there, silver's out there, the dollar's out there, um, various other fiat currencies, Bitcoin is out there. And when people have savings, they decide which one of these do I want to use. And I'll give you one example of 
a use case that someone might want to choose Bitcoin over fiat or over gold. And that would be an example of adoption increasing at the margin. Imagine you're a, a multimillionaire and, or millionaire might not be the right term, but you're very wealthy and you live in China. And for whatever reason, you f- you're starting to feel uncomfortable with the regime there. You want to leave the country, but you don't want to leave penniless. Ludwig von Mises, the great Austrian economist, fled Europe, but he, had, he was penniless when he came to America. What you really want is the ability to move yourself to a place that's favorable to you and your family and is peaceful. But how do you do that? If you have millions of dollars of gold, how do you get on a plane and fly out of the country? They're not even going to let you do that. You can't use the currency. You can't use the yuan to do that. They're not going to let you do that either. But if you have $100 million of Bitcoin, you can walk across a border carrying that in your pocket on a USB drive. So that's an example where at the margin, a person who's looking for that kind of thing is going to choose Bitcoin versus alternatives. And I think slowly over time, other people will recognize that's a powerful use case and they might want to own it just because they see other people demanding that use case. So I guess I I would say I don't think there's necessarily going to be a breakthrough moment. I think it's going to be a slow, steady burn. And I think people will realize that Bitcoin is a permanent institution in the world once it's been around for 20 or so years. Like if you think about the internet after the first 10 years, think about the late 90s. And, you know, people might have said, hey, this is kind of cool. I don't know if it's valuable. If you're someone as bad as Paul Krugman, you might say this is no more significant than the fax machine. But if you go 10 more years when the internet existed for 20 years, people would say, hey, this is, this is going to be here forever. This is really important. And I, I honestly believe there's something about that. I think there's going to be this period of about 10 more years when people are going to say, this thing has existed for 20 years. There's no way it's going to disappear. I have a lot more trust that this thing is going to exist forever. So I want to have some of my savings in Bitcoin. And I I think that process is going to happen slowly and gradually, but steadily over the next decade. All right. Now I want to ask you about something that is, uh, let's say, a forbidden thought you've had, okay? And that is your contention that Bitcoin, I can't believe these words are leaving my lips, Vijay, that Bitcoin is better than gold. All right. You better explain yourself, young man. What do you mean by this? (laughs) Well, I think we need to sort of reflect on history a little bit and and remember that gold was money in most of the world and it was money in the United States. And there was a period of time when you could take a $20 bill and, and go to a bank and say, I want my gold. And you get an ounce of gold back. So to me, this raises the very important question of how did it come to be that gold lost its role as a medium of exchange uh, in the United States? And if you, if you go back to history, and I, I'm absolutely sure you know this history even better than me, but I'll give a brief summary for your, for your listeners. On, on May 1st, 1933, President Roosevelt issued an executive order that outlawed the ownership of gold And this eventually led to the confiscation of gold from US citizens during the Great Depression. So the obvious question, at least to me, is how on earth could they get get away with that? And the reason is gold has problems that Bitcoin solves. Some people, I I don't want to, this isn't meant to be an insult, but I'm just sort of pointing them out. Some people like Peter Schiff talk about the physicality of gold as if it were an advantage and the source of its so-called intrinsic value. Actually, gold's physicality is a, it's a major disadvantage. 
One of the biggest problems with gold is security. If you have any significant holdings in gold, say tens of millions of dollars worth of bullion, you're going to use bank storage because securing that gold yourself is extremely scary. And there are major economies of scale in security. For instance, a bank has far better security than most people have at their home. The problem is there's a centralizing tendency where bullion ends up being concentrated in banks or storage warehouses, um, which are like huge honeypots for governments. Gold's physicality made it much easier for it to be confiscated. And, you know, we've talked about this a little bit. Gold's physicality also makes it much harder to transport. Um, And we talked about the example of someone leaving China. Actually, I have a a very brief story I wanted to tell you about. When when I was a child, um, my mother got very sick and we lived in Australia. I grew up in Australia and, and my dad wanted to move us back to India where he would have his family as a support system around him. But at the time, there was no easy way to transfer money to India using the banking system. So my dad sold all of his Australian assets, his houses and you know whatever he had, and he bought gold and he flew to India with it. And I still vividly remember how anxious my dad was carrying that bag of gold to India, especially given the corruption of Indian institutions. Um, like any policeman or airport security person could have confiscated the bag and it would have been a nightmare to get it back. So when I first discovered Bitcoin, I instantly understood its value proposition. You can easily move it value around the world in a way that can't be prevented by anyone. One other thing I just want to briefly mention, it's not quite as important, but another problem with gold's physicality is it's really inconvenient to use in commerce because a small enough amount of it to buy, for example, a loaf of bread would be so tiny that it could easily be lost. And this was one of the main driving factors that led to the development of promissory notes, uh, which is instead of holding gold, you hold a note which says this note is worth you know, a tenth of an ounce of gold. And they were eventually uh, corrupted and used um, to fractionalize gold reserves. But Bitcoin doesn't have this problem. It can be subdivided and it can be transmitted in, in really, really tiny amounts. Okay, that, that's actually a good point that I hadn't, I hadn't thought of. One way you can cope with the problem of coin size, diminishing coin size, because if it really is true that the supply of gold is roughly fixed, but the supply of other goods increases, then obviously the, the value of the coin is going to get, it's going to fetch you more and more of those physical goods. And so, as you say, you could get to a point where what is it, like three atoms of gold would buy you a house. How is this, this isn't usable at all. So you would either just transition to another metal, you just transition into silver or whatever, but then again, the process would, true, it's continued, but but you could mine more silver. Like people say, there's no, some people think that the Austrian position is there's no economic or social value to be gotten from increasing the supply of money. But there is in this sense that if you were to mine more silver, it would, counteract this process and you could maintain the coin size just by additional mining. So it's not an impossible problem to overcome for the hard money people. Exactly right. It, it could be countered by an increase in supply that would you know, allow for commerce. But one, the last problem that I just wanted to talk about is that gold needs to be assayed. Fake gold is actually a serious problem in the gold market. And I've actually bought a fake gold coin myself, much to my chagrin. And while it's possible to assay gold, the gold you buy, it's expensive and it's potentially involves damaging the gold you own, like punching a hole in it if it's a, a large gold brick. 
Ownership of Bitcoins, on the other hand, can be verified with mathematical certainty using a $5 computer or your smartphone. And that's that's also a very, very powerful thing when, you know, potentially maybe not for you or I if we're de- dealing with a few gold coins, but if you're talking about financial institutions that are settling with each other and moving large amounts of gold between each other, it's certainly, it's an important factor that that gold in a way can be counterfeited. I mean, not in the same way that fiat can be counterfeited and just printed out, but there's a lot of tungsten bars out there and tungsten coins pretending to be gold coins. And you have to be really careful if you're buying gold to make sure you're getting real gold. And and I would suggest if your your viewers are into gold as I am, I'm a gold bug, to make sure you buy a device that will allow you to test the gold that you own. Yeah, I've dealt with that the counterfeiting problem. I've asked people about that on the sound money side. And by the way, we're all on the sound money side. I'm sorry, I shouldn't say it that way. I mean, on the pro-precious metal side, let's say. And right. generally the answer I've gotten is, well, you know, you learn what you need to learn. You know, like, you, you know, you, you'll figure it out. If it's essential for your well-being that you learn how to spot counterfeit gold, you'll learn how to do it. Now, I'm sure there's a better answer than that, but so far that's the only answer I've got. And I have to admit, as somebody who is pro-gold, that's a weak answer. Yeah, I think it's definitely a reasonable answer to my ears. The only problem I have with it is that there's a cost. And if you're dealing with large amounts of gold, that cost is relatively high. My point there is that Bitcoin solves that problem and it can be done much more cheaply. And so the point that I'm trying to drive across is that gold is no longer money and it's I think the reason is it, it became very easy for governments to confiscate gold because it has this centralizing tendency that's actually quite inconvenient to use. So what you do is you don't keep it yourself. You give it to someone else and they give you something that's more convenient to use, which is a, a paper note. And that allows governments to say, hey, all of this gold is sitting in a bank. Let's just go to the bank and take it. Bitcoin doesn't have that problem. It's it's possible to store a very large amount of Bitcoins in a very small space, a USB drive. Right now, that might be a little bit complex for an average person, but over time, the technologies are going to be developed that make it much, much easier for the average person to do that. A lot of times I hear people who support Bitcoin address opponents by saying, you you haven't understood, you've misunderstood what Bitcoin is, or you've misunderstood some important thing about it. And that's why you have the objection you have. I hear that a lot. I hear that more with Bitcoin almost than with anything else. So if you had to pinpoint what you consider to be the most significant misconception you encounter from people who are Bitcoin skeptics, what would it be and what's wrong with it? The biggest misconception would be the first misconception that I had, which is that, hey, this thing is digital, so you can just make a copy of it. And so this thing can't have any value because it's digital things that are easily copied, like photos that are easily copied. What I learned over time is that certain things have a very powerful network effect. And if I was to copy Facebook and, and call it VJ Book, and I made an exact clone with the exact same font and colors and all of that thing, it doesn't mean everyone's going to suddenly use VJ Book because I I made something that looks identical. There's a network effect and a desire to use the dominant platform or dominant thing or dominant money. And so 
I think the fact that it's digital doesn't mean that it's easily copied. There's only one Bitcoin. And actually, I think the fact that a lot of people have tried to copy it and create things like Bitcoin Cash and various other alternatives, the market really has discounted them very significantly. None of them are worth even a fraction of Bitcoin. So that's... I think probably the biggest misconception of people coming into Bitcoin, and it's the first one I had when someone told me about Bitcoin, I'm like, how can you create this digital thing out of thin air? That doesn't really make any sense to me. But the reason it's possible is it uses very interesting algorithm. Uh, It solves a fundamental problem in computer science that had never been solved before. And, you know, the details of that are not really worth getting into, but it was built on a very, very powerful insight that I think deserves the Turing Award, which is the highest award in computer science, and probably a, a Nobel Prize in economics as well, because it has profound implications for economics and, and finance too. So we don't need to know how it was possible, but we do know that digital scarcity is possible uh, with Bitcoin. And, and so a new form of money has been created that I I think this is the most important innovation to money in a thousand years. Wow. All right. So suppose you've just finished listening to this and you're not in Bitcoin, but you want to be, or you're curious, you want to know more, you want to know what your next steps are. What would their next steps be in terms of what do they do and where do they go to learn more? So if you want to understand, you know, why Bitcoin is significant, I wrote a a really long article. It's almost a, a short book called The Bullish Case for Bitcoin, where I make the economic and financial case for why Bitcoin is important. If you want to find resources on understanding Bitcoin, I would suggest going to the Satoshi Nakamoto Institute. They have a, you know, a large collection of articles that go into the backstory and explain the technical details. If you want to sort of figure out how to get some Bitcoin Bitcoin or buy some Bitcoin, there are a number of websites that you can go to. For instance, um, Square Cash um, or Kraken is a website. And, you know, some of the bigger financial institutions are going to start selling Bitcoin soon, I think. So I think Fidelity has a team working on Bitcoin. It's eventually going to be something that you can buy in your brokerage account. So it it might seem complex now, but remember that the fact that it seems complex now means the rewards of trying to figure it out are much higher than later on when it's as easy to use as the dollar is now. Well, I will, if you can send me the link, I'll link to that at tomwoods.com slash 1671 so people can take a look. And then the other thing is, okay, I'd like to buy some Bitcoin and I don't even know what I'm supposed to do. So where do they go to find the not just the the theory of why Bitcoin is uh, superior, but what are the nuts and bolts, step-by-step things I need to do to, to be in it? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, as I mentioned, there are a number of websites. I would recommend a website called Square Cash. And in a way, it's like a bank website. You go there, you put in your name and you put in some details for being able to connect it to your bank account. And then you can transfer some money. You can transfer $10 or $50. And that's the other important thing. You don't need to buy a whole Bitcoin. You can own a fraction of Bitcoin. You can own a hundredth of a Bitcoin, or you can own $1 worth of Bitcoin. That's totally fine. So you go go to one of these websites like Square Cash, you sign up. And it's really, honestly, if you go to Square Cash, I think most people will find it easier to use than a bank website. There's only a few things you can do, um, like 
click buy Bitcoin, add funds to your account from your bank account, uh, sell Bitcoin. So I, I would recommend starting with something like that and, and trying a small amount and, and seeing what happens. Dip your toe in, get some skin in the game, as Nassim Taleb says, get some skin in the game so you have you know, a small financial stake, even if it's half a percent of your portfolio or something tiny like that. And then start going down the rabbit hole. I think this is what happens with a lot of people. They have a small amount, it gains in value over time, and they're like, wow, this is interesting, I want to learn more. And then they start digging into what it's really about. Uh, And then they think about things like, hey, I don't want to keep my Bitcoin on this third-party website uh, like a bank. I want to hold it myself because that's where a lot of its power comes from. And then they start you know, investigating hardware wallets and things of that nature and and how they can store their Bitcoin at home. So uh, I I would start the journey uh, on a website like Square Cash. All right. So we'll have some resources up, let's say, at tomwoods.com slash 1671. Also linking to previous episodes I've done on Bitcoin, I even did a, a, a debate between Roger and Jameson Lopp on the Bitcoin Cash controversy for well, let me just put it this way, nerds who are into that stuff, (laughs) geeks rather, I think is the correct word. Uh, And I think that's, it's so funny. Most people don't know anything about that controversy, but if you're in the heat of that controversy, it is indeed very, very heated. And there's there's tremendous hostility on both sides. And I'm very happy to say that that debate was extremely civil and really did shed light on the differences between them. So we'll have all that linked at tomwoods.com slash 1671. It's great to talk to you again. We just encountered each other on Twitter and uh, realized, how how is it possible I've never had you on the show? So I'm so glad we're able to rectify that. Thanks so much. It was so fun for me, Tom. I'm really glad to hear your voice again. All right, folks, that's going to do it for today. we got one more episode this week coming up tomorrow. And then next week, one of these days next week, I'm trying to put together a good roundtable discussion with several other people on the subject of police and what it would look like in a libertarian society in terms of uh, security provision, because we've heard this slogan, defund the police, and you get you think, oh, well, that's great. And then you look more closely and says, well, defund the police doesn't mean we're going to take all their funding away. Well, you know, you got my hopes up. Well, what? Well, how, how does defund the police not mean you're taking their... So, uh, all right, people are completely confused. So we're going to bring some clarity and precision to exactly what needs to be done with the police. That'll be coming up next week. So make sure you subscribe to the show over at tomwoods.com slash Apple. And if you like and appreciate what I'm doing over here, I would be very, very happy. My heart would be warmed if you would join me in the Tom Woods Show Elite, which you can find over at my Supporting Listeners website. Check that out, supportinglisteners.com. See you tomorrow. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of The Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at Podsworth.com.